Today's sermon text is Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 976. Hear the word of the Lord. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, would you make your word a swift word? Would you make it pass from our ears into our hearts and from our hearts out into our conversations? So that just as the rain doesn't return empty, so neither may your word but accomplish that for which you gave it. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This past week, uh, like many of you, at least several of you here, uh, we were able to go away with spring break for my two school-age kids. And thankfully, we were able to get out of town for, for a couple of days. And rather than going to the beach or to the mountains, a place that my family goes frequently is a place that's affectionately known as the farm. Now, the farm is a terrible name for it, although it, it, I, I can't argue with it because it's been called the farm for as long as it's been in existence. There's no, uh, no cows, no chickens, no corn. There's a small tractor, but that doesn't count. The farm is a 200-acre piece of land in the middle of nowhere, Mississippi, with a small cabin or a small house on it really there's a small lake you can go fishing there's a dozen or so trails that you can ride an atv on and the most enjoyable thing about the farm at least for me at this point is that it has no wi-fi and very limited cell phone reception which is great i love the farm laura's grandparents purchased the land and built the house on the land around 30 years ago or so and uh, Laura, so Laura grew up going there. She has memories of Christmases and of summers spent out at the farm, of getting dirty with her cousins, of coming and doing all sorts of fun things. And when her grandparents passed away about a decade ago now, they passed that piece of property on to Laura's mom and her three siblings. And so now we get to see and enjoy a new generation who's coming and building more memories, new memories of catching fish, catching fish rather, and jumping in mud puddles, and just enjoying some some peace and quiet. Laura's grandparents left a lot of they left other belongings to their kids. They left other belongings to to Laura, but but none is perhaps as prized and as precious as the farm is. What's the greatest thing that you've ever received from those who've gone before you? 
Well, for, for some of you, maybe you're not thinking about the thing that you receive. Maybe you're at a point where you're thinking, what is the inheritance that I'm going to leave for those who are coming after me? Maybe you have something in your family like the farm, a place that you go to. You have maybe a family heirloom, something that was passed down from generation to generation. Maybe it's just a nice nest egg, a, a chunk of cash. But this week, what I, I want us to focus our attention and thinking on is an inheritance that is far greater, far larger than a couple hundred acres. Something that's far more enduring than a pile of cash ever will be. And something that is more comforting even to you than the memories that you share with your loved ones and family. We've spent the past several weeks kind of walking through the amazing gift of being part of God's family and what we've seen, the blessings that God has given to his family in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And this week, the blessings keep on coming. So here in verses 11 through 14, and we're going to finish kind of this opening paragraph of praise to God. And we ought to praise God this morning for the gift of an inheritance. Praise God for the gift of an inheritance. Now, if you have your Bibles open, I just want to kind of show you, you heard it read, I just want to, maybe some Bible reading practice for you, I want to show you how we're dividing the text, so just look down at your text, you'll see there's kind of two points to what's coming. So, there in verse 11, at the very beginning, you see these little words, in him, we said last week that's a good dividing line that we see, and then look at the end of verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Okay, so that's, that's going to be our first point, we're going to see there the privilege of of being made into an heir, the privilege of being made an heir. And then if you go, just look at the next two verses. You'll see the same pattern, the beginning of verse 13, in him, the end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Paul is just making sure we want to see these two points here. And this is our second point, the promise of our inheritance. And then I do, at the very end of this, we've, we have spent, we've gone pretty slow through these first three weeks just because I think it's good for us sometimes to slow down and relish the gift of salvation that God has given us. And Paul just kind of points these things out one by one. Uh, we are going to step back and uh, take a look at the forest as well, kind of at the end of our time and see the praise of our great God. My prayer for us this week, the thing I've been praying, it's similar to all these weeks, but I'm praying that we would respond, just as Paul tells us, that we would respond in praise to the Lord for his extravagant gift of salvation. So let's jump right into verse 11 where we're going to see the privilege of being made an heir. The privilege of being made an heir. Let me read those two verses for us again. Verses 11 and 12. In him, that's in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now there is a, a bit of an interpretive question here that comes up at the very beginning of this verse. So if you're reading from uh, an NIV, a new international version of the Bible, you're, it may say something a little different. It says, verse 11, it will say, in him we were also chosen. Okay, so it's interpreting this verse to say that what we are, this verse is about us being God's heritage. That he inherits us. He, we are his portion. And that is very true. Okay, so that's not a, a bad job by some translators. That's entirely true. Think about Deuteronomy 32, a place where in the Old Testament you see this over and over. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Or in the New Testament, it reflects this idea as well. 
in a place like 1 Peter 2.9, where it says Christians are a people for God's own possession. So that's, that's what they're saying. That's possible here. But, but I think that the ESV and other translations like it are correct in saying that this passage is really about us receiving an inheritance from God rather than us being God's inheritance. I think that's, uh, I think the, the reason for that is because Paul has just been exploring over and over the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And here I think he's just kind of advancing his argument a little bit. Okay, so in verse 5, we were told, we talked about this two weeks ago at the very beginning, we were adopted into God's family. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons to himself. And here Paul is kind of taking that idea and I think just expanding on it. Saying that it's not just you're brought in as sons or as daughters. He's saying here that we are made heirs. Not just that we're sons and daughters, but that we are heirs. We, uh, we talked about adoption a couple weeks ago, the beautiful picture it is of the gospel. Uh, there's this quote that we read from Packer that says that, that adoption may be the highest privilege we receive in the gospel. I, the families I know who, who have both biological children and adoptive children, I, I think they've kind of demonstrated this point just in my interaction with them so well. I, I remember having a conversation with uh, a mom one time who, who uh, was expressing some frustration, just that people who were well-meaning, very kind, but maybe asked a poorly worded question that went something like, uh, so which, which of these are your children and which are adopted? To which she kindly but pretty firmly said, they're all my children. There is no second class kid. They're all my beloved children. I've brought them in, not just to protect some of them, because I love all of them. They're all my beloved children. They are heirs of mine. And God tells us that our adoption into his family is not just something that's really compassionate. It is that. right? He's saving us from something that, of harm that is coming to us. Remember right at the beginning, the end of verse 4, the beginning of verse 5. In love he predestined us. We are adopted not simply so that we will be kept safe from hell, though that is a good thing. We were adopted so that we might be given an inheritance, so that we receive the good gifts of being his children. And so all the blessings that you read in scripture that are held out for God's people, maybe even starting at the very beginning and you're reading blessings promised to God's people in the Old Testament, that he will be their God, they will be his people. He will bless them. And those promises fall now to those who turn to Christ in faith. And so even put yourselves in in the shoes of these Ephesian Christians. Some of these people, maybe like a week ago, before they read this letter, they were in the temple sacrificing to false gods. And when they come in, maybe they think, you know what, this is like, this is my probationary period. Right now, I'm good from hell, but God probably views me as something here and I'm just going to work my way up to be heir and Paul says you have been made an heir with all of God's people there is no second class Christian that is the promise that is held out here for God's people and that that is true today as well so friend, I, I, I know many of you now, and getting to know more and more of you, I know many of you have known the Lord for, for a long time. If you're here and you would say, you know what, I came into this church because I became a Christian last week, 
and I heard that this is what Christians do. They gather and they sing and they hear God's word. We're so glad you're here. And we would tell you that you are now a brother and a sister, a full heir of the blessings that God has given us in Christ. That his salvation belongs to you fully. That is the blessing of being an heir. And we were made heirs, the text tells us, not by some stroke of luck. Not just some accidental kind of loophole that you thought, man, God must have not seen what I did back then because there's no way he'd let me in at this point. We're told that we are heirs not by accident, but by God's gracious and powerful will. Uh, What you have in verse 11, there's like this piling up of words that Paul is going to use to emphasize God's design in making you an heir. So listen to this. We were predestined. He's already said that before, but he's going to say it again. We were predestined according to the purpose of him who works things, all things according to the counsel of his will. You can maybe kind of parse out some of the differences in those terms, but really Paul, I think, is saying like God planned this. He did this on purpose. And we get the point, Paul. He planned it. And this planning is a a really good thing. You and I should be grateful that God is an expert planner. Uh, Maybe you've tried to plan a vacation or something before and you just realize that you don't have all the information. It doesn't work out that well. But God plans and he is able to make his plans come about. Uh, in, in 2015, there was a group of architects and engineers who they wanted to make a, a tourist attraction in the south part of England. Uh, they were, like me, fans of a book called The Lord of the Rings, and they wanted to make this city called Minas Tirith. And if you haven't seen the movies, I'm just going to try to describe it, okay? If, if you're not, I'm sorry for the blank stares. It's, it's like a huge city with seven levels going up hundreds of feet into the air. Each level getting consecutively smaller, built into the side of a mountain, marble, uh, a stone wall jutting out in the center of the city. It was exquisite. The problem is that when Tolkien like writes that, it's free for him to write that. And when you want to build that, Corey can tell you it's expensive to build that. And so these, these guys, they made plans to build this and they said, you know, these are great. Uh, let's reveal it to the public and we'll see if we can crowdfund this. We'll tell people, you give us your money and we'll build this. They said, we need about $2.3 billion over the course of 30 days. And the reason that you may have never heard of this is because they raised $110,000. A little less than one hundredth or one thousandth of percent of what they needed. They had good designs. They had plans that made sense. But they just didn't have the power to make it happen. Friends, God's plans, the good plans that he has for his people, he, every plan he makes will not fail. He is able, the text says, to work all things according to the counsel of his will. So Christian, if God means to save you, God meant to save you, he wanted you, believer, on his team and his plan to save you is secure and steady throughout all of eternity. And it will not fail. So we have, in these, in these couple of verses, what we have is the love of a father to adopt us into his family. And not just to bring us in to keep us safe, but the love that brings us in and says, I want to give you everything that is mine. And then you have the power of the Lord to accomplish his plans. And when you see those two things together, the response should be kind of twofold. 
First, the, the first thing we should do is we should be able to place our hope and our trust in this God. He's not just powerful and trying to use you to accomplish his ends. He loves you. He doesn't just love you, but he's impotent. He's powerful. You can place your hope and your trust in him. And then our second response is that our hope in him should lead to praise. God's will is that our hope in him would lead to his praise. That's what verse 12 shows us. Paul and these these Ephesian Christians, all of these the letters, the people who were receiving the letters of the New Testament, they're like early adopters. You know, the first people to to claim faith in Christ, to trust in him. Paul says this little phrase, the first of those, uh, that we were, we who were the first to hope in Christ. And and that little phrase is loaded to mean that I know there's going to be more. We're the first. There's more coming. I have confidence that God will accomplish what he is going to do. And the ultimate goal of God in saving a people and giving you hope is that we will praise him. And that his praise will go from here to the ends of the earth, which we'll speak more about in a moment, because Paul will say it again in a moment. Okay, so that's, that's the good news of making us heir. We have an inheritance. We've been made into heirs. God has chosen us, brought us into the family. We have a share in the salvation that he is working for his people. And then in verses 13 and through 14, with this next in him section, Paul is going to kind of shift and direct our gaze to the promise of our inheritance. So we have the privilege of being an heir. Now we say that inheritance is promised. It's sure and steady. Look with me again at verses 13 through 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul does this little shift in verse 13. He, he shifts. He's been using this we language. This is our inheritance, this we. And he shifts to this you. You have this. I, I, think, what's, I think what's happening here, have you ever, uh, you've read your Bible before. Many of you have been Christians for a long time. And you can even give like good answers for kind of abstract theological principles. I have been redeemed by God. We have redemption. And then, and then sometimes you're reading and don't you, the Holy Spirit just kind of presses that home in, just says, that's not just true. That's true for me. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. These Ephesian Christians are told, this is not just like something that you need to know for your Bible trivia quiz. This is something that is real. And it's real for you, brother and sister. So even here with Paul, let me just pause and remind you, these truths are not meant to be abstract and have little to no impact on you. They're not meant to be kept at arm's length. Youth, kids, as you're learning about the Bible, these are not things that you just say, I want to answer these questions for me. They're meant to come into our hearts and they're meant for you. And so even here, we're going to see these are for us. So for you in Christ, stop and marvel that you have heard the word of truth, that you believed that word, and that you were saved. Daniel Nayari, in his memoir, Everything Sad is Untrue, uh, came out last year. He's telling this story of 
him growing up in Iran and then fleeing as a refugee into the United States when he is a, an eight-year-old. Uh, his, his mother, Sima, was born into a family that made her royalty. So on one half of her family, she can trace her line back to like some of the Islamic prophets. And then on the other line of her family, she can trace her line back to like some of the, the governmental royalty. So she is uh, a, a golden goose. She is has everything coming to her. She is uh, wealthy. She has land and a family. She was educated, which is rare for a woman in Iran, but she was educated and she was a doctor. So she could actually practice her doctor. She had an easy life in Iran. But when she traveled to England one day for her sister's wedding, she came across a Christian who just had a conversation with her and gave her a Bible. And in the good providence of God, Sima, this this Iranian woman, read the word of truth and was gripped by the love of Jesus for her. When she saw the love of Jesus for her, she responded in love to him, and she became a Christian. You're probably aware of this. Being a Christian in Iran is different than being a Christian in Birmingham. So all the capital that she had acquired, all the things that she has in Iran that are hers, are hers in part because she's Muslim. And when she becomes a Christian, she loses her home, she leaves her wealth behind, she has to run away from her family who threatened to kill her. She takes her two children with her and flees to the United States. And Daniel is reflecting back on this because people, people would ask her and ask him, really, would ask him, why on earth would your mother give that up? She had everything before her. And here's his response to the question, why would she believe this? Why would she do that? So they're on your note sheet if you want to follow along. I just say what my mom says when people ask her that question. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her. And she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true and it's more valuable than seven million dollars in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and ten years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs in Jaffa and maybe even your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. Brothers and sisters, the stories in this book that you hold in your hands, every one of them is true. And in a world that tells you to go live your own truth, to go kind of find the thing that is makes you authentic to your very self, make you happy and to go for it, we hold out the living word of God as the word of truth. The disciples one day, when Jesus says that all the, the crowds are leaving him and they're like, hey, Jesus asked them, are you going to go too? And he says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And friends, this, this is the word in which we have heard and based our hope and our lives upon that it points to Christ. And friend, you, you may be here today And you may hear that, that this is the word of truth. And that may be something that you're actually really wrestling with. Maybe you have read some of the, uh, we were talking about this in core training. Maybe you've read some of like the miraculous deeds of Jesus in the Gospels. And you just wonder, 
can that really be true? I've never seen a man turn water into wine. I just don't know if this is trustworthy. Maybe for you, you read the Bible and you realize that some of the ethical commands, that the things that the Bible tells you that you can or cannot do, should or should not do, those are just things that are a bridge too far. You say, I don't know if this is true. It doesn't feel right to me. Maybe even you are like this Iranian woman, Sima, and you may be walking out of an entirely different religion. But friend, we would, we would tell you, those of us in this church, we have tested this word with our very lives. And we have based our hopes and everything we have upon it. And we would ask you, we would invite you even, to do the same. It would be our joy even. You can find us after service. Find a Christian here and say, hey, I, I want to know this God And that guy just said this word is true. So would you read that book with me? And we would be happy to do that. This word is where the truth is found. And those who place their faith in the Jesus, the Christ it points to, they find joy and salvation. And there is one way that we've been talking about this inheritance. There's a a way that our heavenly inheritance is unlike an earthly inheritance. With an earthly inheritance, uh, the more people who share in it, Kind of the less of it you enjoy. Somebody leaves you a million bucks and you have 12 siblings. Well, it doesn't seem as much as you thought it was then. With a heavenly inheritance, the more people who share in it, the more our joy grows. We want you, friend, to join in this inheritance. We want your joy to be multiplied and our joy is multiplied. So we see more people coming in as co-heirs with Christ. God means to share his inheritance He means to spread it. And the loving thing to do, Christian, is to speak the word of truth to others. That God would draw people to himself. Now, when we believe the word of truth, we place our trust in Christ, we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit marks us as one of God's own people. Uh, We were cleaning out my office I've never used a prop before, so you're just going to have to bear with me. We were cleaning out my office two weeks ago, uh, a month ago, whenever I moved my office over here. And uh, in one of my drawers, we found this thing. This is, does anybody know what this is? Becca, what is this? An embosser. This is an embosser. So uh, I, Rose had no idea what this, what this thing was. I thought it was a stapler. Uh, good guess. It is an embosser. So if I have a book that I buy, I can go to like the first page of the book and put it in there. And stamp down, and there is, if it works right, you can't see this, but that's okay. There is now a little seal that says, from the library of Ryan Adams. Uh, It's a way that I just kind of mark the books that I own. And so that if I loan you a book, that hopefully you'll get it back to me one day. That's what Paul is saying here of the Holy Spirit with Christians. When you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, he is the seal. He is the sign that you belong to God, marking you as God's people. Now, there are a few instances in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit comes and there's like this visible picture of what that looks like. That you see tongues of fire coming down in Acts chapter 2 on people. And you go, that person is a Christian because the Holy Spirit just like is right there on them. In, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius becomes a Christian. Those who hear the word and the Holy Spirit comes down, they speak in tongues. But typically the sealing of the Holy Spirit, like when I became a Christian, I didn't get like a, I don't have a hidden tattoo on my bicep or anything. 
And if I did, I wouldn't tell you about that. But uh, I, I don't, you don't get some like external sign. It's not like that little embosser in that way. But because there, there isn't like this external sign doesn't mean that there's not some mark of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that is, in fact, why he is called the Holy Spirit. Right? So the way that the Holy Spirit marks your life is not some sort of outward mark, not some sort of sign that gets on your forehead. One of the works in, his, in your life is to conform you into the image of Jesus. So for those who have the Holy Spirit, the way that you see that seal, again, is, is not the outward mark, but it's what God is doing through the Spirit in your life. So while you, you don't have an angel kind of declaring to those around you, just standing on your shoulder, telling other people as you walk by, hey, this guy's a Christian coming through, you do start using your words in ways that are edifying, that are building others up. Maybe your attitude that has been so terrible, you're just angry all the time. The Holy Spirit, the seal, and the way that you see him working is the way that he starts to conform you more and more to gentleness, to meekness, the meekness of Christ. So the the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon your life as a believer, he marks you, he seals you and says, this one belongs to God and his presence in your life changes you to look more like Jesus. It's testifying to yourself and to those around you that we belong to him. And the Spirit's presence in our life also has a future look. So it seals us, it changes us, it marks us now, but it also has a future look. The presence of the Holy Spirit guarantees that God will complete his work in you. Uh, Laura likes to joke that I have seasonal hobbies. Um, And by that I don't mean like fall, winter, summer type hobbies. Um, I, I can watch a documentary or read a book or just make a friend who has what I think is a cool hobby. And then for about three to five months, I want that hobby too. So uh, there was the mountain bike phase and the kayak phase. And there was the uh, cooking phase. There was a stargazing phase. I got so close to buying a really expensive telescope. And thankfully, that one just passed. Uh, what's the, the phase now is coffee, I was told yesterday. But after a, a couple months of just kind of being engrossed in a hobby and thinking, this is... This is what I'm, 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 a, I'm a coffee snob. Uh, I will find something different. I'll make a new friend or read a new book. And then, boom, I'm, I'm interested in that thing. I may leave. Uh, there, there was a time where me and my roommate planned to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And that, like, that plan's way, way in the past. It never came to any fruition whatsoever. Uh, the next thing just kind of came along. And thank God, friends, for a multitude of reasons. God is not like me. Philippians 1.6 is there on your notes. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And the way that we know the Holy, uh, the way we know this is that the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee. Uh, it's like a down payment or earnest money. His presence with you is the promise that God will not abandon or forsake you. And the works that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life today are even just, they're promises that he's not going to leave you, but they're actually just even little glimpses and shadows of the full work that he'll do on that last day. So today, in your life, one of the works of the Holy Spirit, the way that he works in the life of a believer is that he, he illuminates God's word. So as you're reading your Bible there on your couch on a Tuesday morning, God, by his spirit, is doing a miraculous work and helping you understand and know and apply that 
and for it to actually impact your life. But then on the final day, it won't just be the down payment of illuminating us reading. We are told that God himself will be our everlasting light. And on that day, we won't need that help just because we won't understand in part. We won't be looking through the mirror dimly. We will know as we are fully known. Today, the Holy Spirit is a down payment. He is, he is sanctifying you. He's making you more like Jesus. But there are still plenty of places where you say, I'm becoming more like Jesus, but I'm not there yet. But on that final day, it won't just be the down payment of sanctification. It'll be the full payment of you being perfectly holy. And all your sin and all the struggle against sin, on that day you will find victory and only victory. Today the Holy Spirit is like a down payment. He brings, he is the comforter. He, he brings comfort in our sorrows. He applies the balm of his word to our wounds. But on that day when the payment is made in full, you will have no need for temporary comforts. You won't need that work because everlasting joy then will be yours. This is the great joy of our inheritance that we have in Christ through the work of his spirit. We are made heirs with Christ and we have a promised inheritance that is ours today, just maybe in seed form. But on that final day, it will be ours in full flower. And now that we have come to the end of this paragraph where Paul just shows us over and over, here are the myriad of blessings that God has given you in Christ I do want us to just kind of back out the camera lens a little bit. We spent these three weeks looking at the adoption that we have from the Father, the redemption we have in the Son, the inheritance that's promised by the Spirit. But before moving on, I want to just briefly make sure that we see the forest and not only the trees. I've got four themes there on your notes, four things that you kind of see over and over that Paul is pressing in on us throughout these verses uh, and this is, if you want to just like the, the main point of these few verses uh, in a sentence, it's there kind of running through as a sentence. So first, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit at work. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most distinctive doctrines that Christians hold to. We were talking this morning in our core training class about about Jesus being fully God and fully human, another doctrine that is difficult to explain, but that we hold to dearly. Uh, So in the Trinity, we believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for the past 2,000 years, people have written volumes on that one sentence and how to explain that. And if we are not careful, I think this has been my tendency for many years, is when I hear the Trinity, I immediately go into like problem-solving mode. What do I, how do I explain this? What do I do with this? This is so difficult. Friends, the, the Bible doesn't just hold out the Holy Spirit, the Trinity rather, as a problem to be solved. It holds out the, the Trinity as a truth to be embraced, as a blessing that shows the very good gift it is and celebrated that we have God in three persons, blessed at Trinity. And this little paragraph, if you're saying, where, where do we see that? This little paragraph is a great place to go. We see the Father adopting a people for himself. The Son dying in our place in order to redeem us. The Spirit sealing us until that final day. This paragraph is about God in three persons working for his people. That's the second part. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have graciously worked to save a people. 
And over and over again in this paragraph, you're going to be confronted with the truth that God is sovereign. That he is in charge and he is in control of our salvation even. So verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Verses 9 through 10, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, a plan for the fullness of time. And then verse 11 that we looked at earlier today. How often when you look at your own life, do you just feel like you're out of control? Because I, I feel that frequently. I imagine that you do as well. And the reality is that that truth is pointing to the truth. That you're not in control. With the good news of our lives and our hopes is that they are not in our hands, but in the hands of our sovereign God who planned and purposed from all of eternity to find, to have a people for himself. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they've graciously worked to save a people. Third, they've done this in Christ. Uh, I could walk through and show you every place that happens, but it happens over and over and over again. Every verse except for eight, verses 8 and verse 14, you see this phrase, in Christ, through Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. The spiritual blessings that we have, they're not, they're not ultimately just about us. They're not meant to point to us and how great we are. They're meant to drive us to see the beauty and glory of Christ. And that is the story of all of the scripture. We should be tuning our hearts to sing His praise, not ours. And every gift we have is ours because of who he is and what he has done for us. And lastly, all of this is done to the praise of God's glory. Twice we saw that in our passage. We saw that earlier in verse 6. Paul says a similar thing there. Paul has ultimately just kind of pulled back the curtain to show the ultimate purpose. Why has God done all of this for you? It's because the purpose of our existence, brothers and sisters, is that we should praise God for all of our days. And for those who are in Christ, the beauty of the inheritance that we have in him is that all of our days, the salvation that comes to those in his church is that we have a lot of days before us, endless days before us even. Today we are one day closer to heaven when we won't simply have that down payment. We won't simply have just like the the beginnings of our hope. We shall see and savor Christ on that day and the day after and forevermore. I want to close us in prayer and ask the Lord even to bring that day to us quickly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great gift of salvation that you have given us in Christ. Thank you for bringing us in and not just saving us and treating us as servants and slaves, but as your beloved children, heirs. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, conform us more into the image of Jesus. That your seal upon us in the Spirit would help us to look more and more like Christ. And we do, Lord. We ask that you would come quickly. And that we would not just enjoy the down payment of this inheritance, but that we would enjoy it with you and with your people forevermore. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we get to taste.